0: people, Hello and welcome to Blockchain Insider, I'm your host Mauricio Magaldi and this is episode 202. I'm joined by my fantastic co-host Catherine Gu, Head of CBDC and Protocols at Visa, How are you doing today, Catherine? Welcome to the show.
1: Thank you, Mauricio. Doing well, doing well. Very excited for this show and I can't believe we're at the end of the year, near Christmas. So yeah.
0: It's a hot topic nonetheless. It's tokenized deposits. We're going to take a closer look at what they are, how they intersect with CBDCs, how bankers and other financial institutions are thinking about the future of deposits and CBDCs, and more. And we're not alone to discuss this. Catherine and I are joined by an amazing guest, Hasib Qureshi, managing partner at Dragonfly. Welcome to the show, Hasib. For those of our listeners who don't know you or Dragonfly, can you give us like a two-minute intro to Hasib and Dragonfly, please? Sure. Thanks for having me. By the way, uh, so I'm Hasib, managing partner
2: at Dragonfly, which is a global crypto investment firm. So we back early-stage founders from you know the beginning of their journey when it's just you know sort of two people in a garage to building world-leading protocols and companies in crypto. So we've been doing this uh, since 2018. We manage um, just about a couple billion dollars in AUM, and um, yeah, we're one of the one one of the big bigger players in the space when it comes to uh, backing early stage companies in crypto. So um, I come from a technology background. I used to be a software engineer and an entrepreneur a long, long time ago as a professional poker player and uh much in the style of crypto having a lot of different experiences in your background i think tends to inform a, a broad view of what's happening in the space so um yeah i've been an investor for quite a while now coming
0: up on six years
2: and uh, really fascinated by everything happening in this industry
0: awesome it's going to be a great conversation so before we dive in just as a reminder to our listeners. The views or opinions of our panel are their own and don't necessarily reflect those of the companies that they're representing. And as always, nothing we say should be taken as tax, financial, or legal advice, so do your own research. So let's get started. Before I go deeper into the weeds of tokenized deposits, let's take a step back and take a closer look of what exactly is a tokenized deposit in the sense of is it just a token that represents something? Is it a stable coin? Are these two things the same? How do they come to be? I'm going to start with Catherine. You're a CBDC person, protocol person, has done a lot of stable coin work. Can you help us sort out as we start what are the differences between all this variety of tokenized? Money, I'd say.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I, I think it's um, you know tokenization as a word is both new but also not new in the sense putting money on chain is certainly like a new innovation with together with the blockchain. But you know if we trace back before this era, Visa has been doing a ton of tokenization. Right, tokenization is really a matter of how do you encrypt certain sensitive data such that you can reduce the the amount of fraud. So you know Visa already has this in production team called VTS, for example, Visa. The token services, in which we actually just replace the user's 16 digit PAN number with a secure token. And again, the, the aim is just trying to reduce the fraud uh, related to that. Now, I guess if we move on to the blockchain context, it's all about you know how could you have this private key in which the private key in itself is one-to-one mapped to the amount of assets you have. So in a way, you are tokenizing or encrypting the money itself onto the blockchain, which I guess is a little bit of a shift. I guess through my work, just seeing all the things happening, what we like to call this is this entire evolution of tokenization of fiat money and I emphasize that mainly because I think money hasn't really changed for a long time and you know everything we do is still very much in the fiat world but it's just the form factor right now is uh, a little bit different right like we started with stablecoin which is really tokenizing of the fiat money that you already have saved in a bank account well it's a very simplistic view but that's where you get it right and CBDC comes along which is the tokenization of central bank money. And now, as we're looking at what else is out there, uh, I would say that there's a huge chunk of the money supply that is representative of commercial bank liabilities. And hence, this term was born, which is the tokenization of bank deposits, which is really reflecting the fact that banks right now are trying to tokenize, well, i.e. bring their commercial bank liabilities and assets uh, onto the blockchain as a ledger account keeping.
0: Nice. And Hasib, when, when you were in the world of investment you're looking into these new entrepreneurs and the protocols that you guys are supporting as investors what is the style of companies that you have seen that are starting to tap into tokenized deposits or even more broadly into cbdcs maybe and obviously stable coins
2: so it's important to understand that there's a very big difference between those three categories you just enunciated from CBDCs to tokenized deposits to stable coins, it's kind of almost walking down the hierarchy of money in exactly that order, right? The purest form of money is a central bank deposit. Central banks do control what is and is not money at the end of the day, and if they decide, hey, I don't like this form of money, they can more or less delete it, right? They are the ultimate arbiter of what is and is not money. Commercial banks sit one level below that. Often in most countries, they are quasi-nationalized, the commercial banks, in that they are very, very tightly regulated to the point where you know, commercial banks can't just, you know, do whatever they want to do. And governments often have an implicit backing of commercial bank parity with central bank money, as we've seen with SVB and Silvergate and Signature. Now, when you when you move all the way to stablecoins, stablecoins are really the domain of purely private actors, right? So it's often been compared to the wildcat banking era, where you have more or less unregulated banks that really are not nationalized in any sense of the word. I cannot imagine the Fed bailing out Circle or, uh, you know, any other uh, stablecoin issuer, although, you know, maybe if they get big enough, we can imagine that. But the other difference, of course, is their potential for private entrepreneurship. So all of the big stablecoin issuers today, they are all private entrepreneurs. Every single one of them is, you know, some proverbial people in a garage who decide, hey, I want to build this new thing and it's kind of cool and let's see if we can get market share and distribution. Um, and of course, the regulatory regime for stablecoins today are incredibly patchwork and vague and, and there, there is no federal legislation into which stablecoins fit, right? It's unclear, are stablecoins banks? Or are they not banks? So right now, it seems to be that, yes, they're not banks. They don't require banking charters, uh, although there is a bill that's currently being contemplated that would require them to have uh, banking charters of a kind. But uh, currently, today, that's not the case. So the stablecoin issuers are totally, they can just be startups that can issue stablecoins. Now, when you talk about startups playing in the game of CBDCs, this is not really so much of a thing. Now, why is this not so much of a thing? It, it's not so much of a thing because, of course, this is this is a service provided by the government. So the kind of companies that can get involved here are basically contracting to the government. And traditionally speaking, these don't tend to be startups. Government contracting has a very long sales cycle. It requires to have long-standing relationships. So it tends to be government contractors or folks like Visa and other parties who tend to actually work directly and have contracts with government actors who are pursuing CBDCs. Now, for tokenized deposits, right, these are really the domain of central banks. Or oh, Sorry, no, commercial banks, not central banks. So Chase, J.P. Morgan, Bank of America, uh, these kinds of folks, generally speaking, these people have teams internally that are going to be doing the work of building these tokenized deposits. And, you know, obviously tokenized deposits as a category have not really taken off yet. So there hasn't been uh, room for there to be startups that directly interact with tokenized deposits for that reason. So almost all of the innovation that's happening on the private entrepreneurship side is happening in the domain of stable coins uh which are you know again the the purest kind of unfettered form of money moving around uh, that's that's uh, privately administered uh now i'm skeptical of the story for both cbdcs and for tokenized deposits and i know Catherine and i we've had arguments about this going back many many years now from when when she was since uh, i started
1: at visa <laughs> that's right when you were a little
2: baby just first uh investigating cbdc's um, but uh, but I'm I'm curious to hear the the bull story for um, tokenized deposits and then to totally deconstruct it, which is I think the way that our conversations tend to go.
0: <laughs> yeah, I think we can definitely get into a little bit of that. But but in terms in terms of I think we we cover a lot in terms of definition, and I think there are formats. And and I'm not trying to disagree with you, Hasib. It's more that there are interesting programs with uh, the realm of uh, CBDCs where There are sandboxes that are being uh, offered by particular central banks where startups are invited to play with and and, and interact and build upon CBDCs in terms of infrastructure, which have been kind of not devoid of controversy because that is exactly where CBDCs play. It's a weird Cousin of the other types of tokenized money, but there is uh, a little bit of space there for some of these sandbox programs uh, to welcome some of these uh, entrepreneurs. They're all they're all bound by the very restricted uh, rules of those sandboxes, uh, but they ha- there have been uh, a few instances where central banks were strangely excited <laughs> of having those folks involved. But yeah. Uh, let's go back to you, Catherine, in terms of what is the bull case for CBDCs or tokenized deposits versus uh, stablecoins?
1: I'm not going to argue for bull or bear, but I think to me, how I see the space, right? Um, you know, as it, as I said, just at the beginning, like if I look at the entire money supply today, 90 plus percent of that money supply is composed of commercial bank liabilities, right? You and me, we use our respective commercial banks liabilities to transact in our day-to-day level. Same with b- business B2B type of transactions. Uh, I'm just sort of, to a certain extent, surprised that not enough of at least Pilots and innovation has taken place till more recently, till I would say the last 12 months or so. So I think, regardless, it's definitely worth a try because if anything, if we really believe the future such that you know the blockchain's major use case is in payments, you have to have the financial institutions being a core part of this innovation. I, I I think. You know, my, my reverse sort of uh, argument would just be, I don't think crypto alone would be able to take that new wave of innovations. You have to have the mainstream adoption and the mainstream adoption need to come from the financial st- institution. So actually, I'm excited the fact that financial institutions these days are more willing and very open to these sort of blockchain tokenization and efforts. So I, I actually don't know if you um, if you guys have seen the news, uh, even as recent as last week. Right. Society General. They have now just issued this bank stablecoin and that was in Europe. So this is the first bank euro stablecoin that went live. And to me, that was really interesting as an industry trend because I just feel like now, as we're looking at stablecoin and tokenized deposits, there's more overlaps in terms of, you know, on the one hand, it's the private sector who want to become more regulated under this premise of the central bank governance sort of um, structure. On the other hand, you have the financial institutions also moving towards a stablecoin model. So they're really merging more and more. So I wonder, Hasib, how, how do you interpret these sort of move movers and shakers whether that's a good thing for the industry as a whole what you think that could be crowding out effect and such
2: let me give a, a zoomed out answer so i've been in the space now for you know i've been in this space since 2017 full-time and i cannot tell you the number of times that i've been handed a headline that said oh such and such bank or such and such thing did a thing on the blockchain and a year later i never hear another thing about it and the the reason why i tend to discount these kinds of movements is because the kinds of folks who are within banks or within financial institutions who are incentivized to experiment with cool little blockchain projects, they tend to be sort of in the corporate innovation department of the bank and they get, you know, some kind of headline or they get some little reward for doing something, but they are in no way, uh, enabled to actually bring this thing to, to production scale for a bank. Right. The reality is that for most banks, their, their primary customer is their regulator. It's not. It's not, okay, how can we make things marginally better for our customers? It's how can we make sure that we don't run afoul of our regulators? And there are no regulators anywhere except maybe in China that are ready for big disruptions to the banking sector. And and, and that's in large part what tokenized deposits would entail, right? If you look at, so I'd be curious again to hear what you think of as the set of advantages from tokenized deposits. But um, if you look at, for example, 24-7 clearing, right? This is something that people often assume. It's one of the big things that's advantageous about stablecoins is that they allow 24-7 clearing in addition to many other things. Well, 24-7 clearing was at the center of Silvergate Signature, and they they were precisely blamed as being a part of the reason why these banks were unsafe and therefore should not be allowed to continue operating these services. FDIC, Shut down the 24 four seven clearing networks that Silvergate and, and Signature operated, and also did not allow them to be sold to the new acquirer of the banks under the premise that these things were too dangerous. So, in a way, FDIC, what they were implicitly saying is that no, 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 it's safer for banks to have the same old okay, no clearing on weekends, you know, no clearing after eight p.m., blah, blah, blah. They, they they wanted this to continue, and they saw any change. Now, this is not tokenized. There's no there's no blockchain anything. These are just literally moving things around on a database after 8 p.m., right? That was considered to be too dangerous to to allow to exist. So to me, I don't think the problem is that these things don't live on blockchains. The problem is that there's, I mean, look, I I don't know the banking world as well as you guys do, but to me, it seems very clear that trying to solve these problems by appealing to blockchains is kind of many, many steps too far. There are many places around the world that already have 24-7 clearing. They've had 24/7 clearing for decades. You don't need blockchains to solve this problem. Um, it's 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 a deeper problem, and I feel like talking about tokenized deposits as the way to solve this problem is a little bit of sleight of hand or misdirection.
0: Curious to get your guys' response to that. I I have one thing about trying to solve things with technologies that already exist and have been solved, is that if you don't add anything to that, if it's not accretive. Then then it's pointless, right? So in a sense the way that I've seen tokenized deposits being positioned is much beyond the you know global 24/7 clearing is to be able to within a reasonable certainty that there is backing to that form of money you can do programmable things that you can't do in siloed infrastructure and the emergence of regulated defi one clear example is Project Guardian in in Singapore, that is doubling down in not only tokenized deposits in the context of regulated DeFi, but also making sure that RWAs have utility. Because I I feel this is one of those contradictions in crypto. Everybody's excited about RWA, but they forget that money is a state concession. For us to get some form of valid money on chain, well, we're going to have to partner. It's not going to be just you know, free realm of stable coins, even stable coins are going to get their fair share of regulation. So, you know, mom and dad and grandma can start actually touching some of those things to their own benefit. So there is a little bit of a balance there. It's probably not going to be one thing or the other. And there's a fair chance that CBDCs and tokenized deposits and stable coins, although they're, as you said, three different categories of money in different scale will have to coexist for different sets of use cases and they're gonna solve different problems in different ways. Yeah, I've I've said this in the show before, I'm not the big supporter of CBDCs, but if you can find ways to use CBDCs to backup tokenized deposits, that might be the way. That might be the only way that you get proof of reserves that are good enough to satisfy regulators everywhere in the world, right? So that's one angle I, I feel that these things might be convergent. So here, here's what I would argue. If you look at what
2: makes stablecoins so powerful, what makes them so interesting to entrepreneurs and to all the different use cases for which people seek them, I'd argue that there are basically three things. The first thing is that there's a 24-7 clearing. That's what we just talked about. And the, the assumption is that that's going to be the case with any CBDC or with any tokenized deposit. Right, they took a tokenized commercial bank deposit. Okay, that's kind, of, that's kind of Bush League. That's kind of the basics, right? Like that many countries in the world already have that. They didn't need blockchains to have that as a, as a function. But great, let's say now that's stable stakes. The second feature that stable coins have is this idea that they are programmable, right? So you can write arbitrary code and execute them over money. Now, in some sense, you could argue like, well, you know, many banks have APIs and, uh, you know, you can use Stripe and you can use this other thing and blah, blah, blah. And so, you know, maybe, is that really such a big deal that you can program over money? Kind of, yes, sometimes depends on the situation, but let's say for now that, yes, let's, let's argue that that, that is sufficiently different than what you could do even with uh, you know, a banking API. Um, well, the third thing, and I think perhaps the most important thing is that they are permissionless, the thing about stable coins is that they are permissionless to hold. And that means that you do not have to be a US person to hold a USD stablecoin. That means you don't have to be a person at all. In fact, you can be a contract, you can be a multi-sig, you can be a physical device and you can own currency, right? That is what stablecoins enable. Now that is almost certainly, and I've never seen a single proposal for a CBDC or for a tokenized bank deposit that allows non-humans to own money or certainly non-nationalized citizens of the country which is issuing the currency. But this, I think, is the the really important component that is the step function difference in stablecoins versus other types of money, right? If you imagine, okay, let's say we're using a tokenized deposit and we have some kind of program we've written that's going to interact with these tokenized deposits. Well, any time that you're subject, for example, to the Bank Secrecy Act, that means that there's restrictions on the kinds of, Activities that are allowed to take place within this commercial bank, right? If you're doing something that looks strange or suspicious, or it looks like, hey, you're sending too many transactions too quickly, uh, I, I must stop you and investigate what is going on in order to potentially prevent fraud or prevent uh, sanctions violations or blah 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 blah. Okay, so this is this is an, an affirmative thing, rather than in the case of stablecoin issuers, it's a it's a reactive thing as opposed to a proactive thing. If that makes sense, right? A stablecoin issuer, importantly, cannot stop you from transacting. They can go back and delete your currency once it's already there, right? But there is no central choke point through which every transaction in a stablecoin is um, administered, right? That I think is the crucial difference of it is a it is a system which asks, or you, what you could say is that the default is permission rather than lack of permission. And in almost any central bank digital currency that I have seen, and I, I assume this is also true for commercial bank deposits, uh, tokenized deposits, that it would be fundamentally the same, that as an entrepreneur, I cannot assume that this thing is going to let me transact. I have to always build in edge cases and edge cases and edge cases such that my bank might decide, hey, uh, by the way, what you're doing is too weird. We're not going to allow this right now. I think that level of uh, expected disruption is a very big difference between what people expect out of stablecoins versus what they would expect out of tokenized deposits.
1: I want to jump in here because I would say that I agree with you that number one and number two features, you can argue that whether it's stable coins or tokenized deposits, they can probably achieve the same, right? The programmability tick, like the clearing tick. Like the last one, I think certainly this is a big sort of uh, work in progress debate, if you will, because there is a lot of sort of differentials depends on who you talk to, whether it's permission or permissionless. Question number one is, you know, I think we started on the stablecoin path with absolutely no KYC. Anyone can hold on to USDC. Now, I, I question whether that is necessarily the best or the right thing to do. I don't know. I don't have a strong opinion on that. But I do wonder if there's that in-between. I, I agree with you also the fact that, you know, obviously you don't want to have these choke points because as a personal citizen, this is clearly not the thing you want. Now, this is a matter of whether technology can somehow find that nice middle ground in-between in the sense like, what well, for example, as a very good example, That what we're trying to figure out is, you know, it tends to be the fact that if you're today, if you're transacting in a banking world, your transaction probably can still go through. But it's retrospectively, your bank will come back to you and say, you know, you've done something suspicious. I'm now going to kind of like freeze your account and going to have this elongated period to investigate what's going on. I was just trying to, I mean, this is more thinking aloud, to figure out whether in the future with the technology and with privacy preserving, first, you know, we we still want to pre, uh, protect that. But second, whether it could be done in real time such that, you know, before I actually send out that transaction, if the bank has a real issue, you should just let the customer and you can have the possibility to block it. But once you do let it out, you should have a sort of a verifiable tick mark, if you will, in a way, in a cryptographic way, such that in the future, this transaction, when it's being viewed by any other banks or by any regulators retrospectively, you should be guaranteed because the guarantee should be on the bank. So I wonder whether that's possible in the future that we go for a more real-time sort of monitoring, because then you you can somewhat solve for both the lack of complete no KYC, which I don't think is a good thing, but also trying to accommodate these kind of issues. And I think that's like a, the real innovation, right? The private sector should really focus on.
2: Well, one of the things obviously that makes crypto so notable is that it's global. It, crypto is used all over the world in, in many different countries outside the US, actually mostly outside the US. And so th- that is another place where I would take issue with you. Even, even China, which talks about uh, the ECNY, the Chinese central bank digital currency, one of its stated goals is the internationalization of the RMB. Well, you can't internationalize the RMB if you require every single person who holds it to be a Chinese citizen, right? That's obviously directly at odds. And so I think the the same thing is is clearly true now for stablecoins. Stablecoins are growing very quickly. I think even people now in Congress who historically I think have been, you know, largely resting on the laurels of dollar dominance are now increasingly getting nervous that they see calls from other countries to try to reduce their reliance on the dollar. And the idea that you want the dollar to be the dominant reserve currency of the world, even for people who are not in the domain of the dollar or the U.S. legal system, to me that seems that seems obvious that you that you do want that. You want the widest possible tent for people to be using money— and in, in the 21st century, people are going to use digital money. They're not going to use cash, right? It's just it's just not the case that we're going to be exporting little green pieces of paper to everywhere in the world and that's how countries are going to dollarize. No, no, they're, they're going to use digital forms of money. And so if they're not going to use dollars, what are they going to use instead? Um, I think that there is clearly going to be a competition for who is going to be the world's cash reserve. If you were going to say like, look, well, you can open up an account at JP Morgan and blah, blah, blah. It's like, no, well, that's not – That's not going to happen. That's going to lock out the dollar from being able to be that that dominant currency world round. Now, you know, we we the the US, I think, if you look historically at the Euro dollar market, I think this this was a, a, a precursor to what we're going to see with stable coins, which is that the US did not want the Euro dollar market to exist and kind of closed its eyes and pretended that look, if I if I disallow this aggressively enough, it'll just go away. And the answer is that of course not. Of course it won't go away. The world wants you know, the, the world is going to find a way to get access to dollars one way or another, they will. And the question is simply how far from the reach of the US government and how much of the ability for the US government to dictate monetary policy is going to be ceded to actors outside the US. And the answer with the euro dollar market was well, all of it, you're going to lose control of all of it. And so, I think th- what we're going to see is a replay of this one way or another people want dollars all around the world that's why the dollar has strengthened so much in the last few years is because of the overwhelming global demand for dollars um, if you say to them you cannot get the dollars the way that i the, the, you know
0: you cannot get your dollars through the front door they will go through the side door they just will they'll find a way that's a big point for our next section so let's uh, take a quick pause here to hear from our sponsors we'll be right back this episode is brought to you by visa one of the world's leaders in digital payments. Crypto has opened up a new world of possibilities, and Visa is helping everyone take part. Consumers can now enjoy the freedom and flexibility of using their Visa crypto link cards for everyday purchases at millions of Visa-accepting merchant locations around the world. Join us in this new money movement. Learn more at Visa.com forward slash crypto. Okay, welcome back we've gone through the definitions of tokenized deposits and all forms of different you know form of digital money and so let's talk about a little bit about the future we were starting to kind of ramp up into what people will need and i think uh, hasib to your point that's what makes technology useful if people will need and there's a technology that will solve that there is adoption and so maybe adoption is where we should start this kind of next section is instead of asking why would ma- mainstream adoption happen? Maybe we should ask, how do you guys think more of a widespread adoption would happen? If if not for CBDCs that might have this kind of geographical or jurisdictional limitations, tokenized deposits and stablecoins are some things that uh, are, by and large, if they are issued on blockchains that are public, they are born digital and they are born borderless or global, right? So, as you were saying, the uh, the access to it, if people really want it, they'll have it. It's not like it's permissionless, it's not like someone is gonna say, Stop, you can touch this piece of currency. So is this the path forward? And maybe the second question is where is this gonna pick up first? Is it the global south? Is it the US? Is it Europe? Is it where regulations are more strict? What do you guys think? I'm gonna go, I'm gonna start with you, Hasib, and then I wanna hear you, Kat. Okay, so,
2: so my assumption on tokenized deposits is that they will require you to be a customer of the commercial bank in order to hold a tokenized deposit. Is that not the case?
1: It's a very interesting question. I think by default, yes, but uh, increasingly people are asking the question whether it's possible. And by the way, I see this as an innovation from a, both a technology and a regulatory perspective, whether it's possible in the future that if you're not directly a bank customer, you can still hold on to that bank's liability because it's in a token form, but you have to have some change, I suspect. Uh, in that liability or legal definition of what what is a tokenized bank deposit therefore so we don't know that's a that's yeah
2: yeah i would assume that under current regulations that would not really be possible because of the bank secrecy act and all the requirements of the bank to you know check for aml and kyc and all that but but okay let's let's assume we're in that world uh, because otherwise the form of the question doesn't make much sense so let's assume we're in the world where a tokenized deposit is freely transferable and so on the question you really want to ask which we sort of have a microcosm of it is, okay, clearly the place today where we have the most demand for stablecoins, which are th- these kind of proto version of a commercial bank tokenized deposit is um, uh, in, in two things. One for crypto trading, obviously that's right now the, the, uh, one of the major use cases for uh, tokenized stablecoins. I believe something like a third of stablecoins uh, are currently sitting on exchanges. Now, that still leaves two-thirds of uh, stablecoins that are not sitting on exchanges. So, clearly, there's a lot of other stuff going on with stablecoins. But I think it's it's pretty straightforward to claim that the vast majority of stablecoin activity comes from countries with strong capital controls. So, it comes from places where people want to get out of their local currency and they want to get into dollars. And the, the places where, of course, people have capital controls is where the government has a vested interest in not having this free this freedom of capital outflows from the you know, uh, citizens who've, who've uh, uh, you know, come into some some wealth. So uh, that means by default, places like China, India, um, you know, Japan, Korea, these, these are all places that have strong capital controls and also concordantly where we see significant adoption of stablecoins. Now, the interesting thing in stablecoins, there's two very large stablecoin issuers today, Circle and Tether. Tether is by far the largest. Since the banking crisis in March, Circle has lost a lot of market share. And the reason why Circle lost a lot of market share, one, of course, there, you know, there was a DPEG event that happened uh, uh, with Circle. But uh, in large part, it was seen by many people around the world that Circle is very deeply in bed with the U.S. government. And I think there was a lot of stuff that was happening in D.C. and you know, the DPEG itself, but also the, um, the, the, the close ties to many different banks in the U.S. that uh, made people around the world start to really believe that if you want safe money and you're not a U.S. citizen— it is better to hold tether than to hold USDC. Now, this is this has been a long time trope that people in the U.S. are mystified by. They they think to themselves, well, "Well, tether's so shady. Why would you trust tether? USDC they're regulated. Isn't that what you want? Don't you want regulation?" And if you're a Chinese citizen, the answer is very unequivocally no. No, I do not want regulation. I do not want you to be closer to the U.S. government because if you're closer to the U.S. government, I know what the U.S. government does not like. And the answer is foreigners. They they do not like foreigners. They don't care about foreigners. And so if I am a, a stable coin holder of USDC, and USDC, for whatever reason, is shut down by the government, then uh, I'm sure all the Americans are going to get all their money back. But are the Chinese people going to get, you know, uh, a, you know 99 cents to the dollar if there's, a, if there's a DPEG, or 95 cents to the dollar if there's a DPEG? Plausibly not, probably not. I don't even know how I'd get in line in order to make my claim that, hey, I deserve my 95 cents for all the dollars I put into the stable coin. And so in some sense, What they want is the the furthest possible thing from the reaches of the U.S. government. And to the extent that um, private issuers are the furthest away from the central bank, that is in large part of the reason why I think it may still be the case that if you fast forward five to 10 years and you do have commercial bank uh, uh, tokenized deposits that are in competition with these private stablecoin issuers, that people outside the U.S. may still prefer private issuers over commercial banks.
1: Just going back to the permission, permissionless sort of discussion we had, I think one one thing to note also is, you know, if you look at what type of assets you're putting on chain these days, by institutions, some of them do choose public blockchains. And I think you tend to see more of that coming from the tokenization of assets perspective, right? Taking the example of Franklin Templeton or some related stuff, when they're looking at how do I tokenize my money market funds, they would look at public blockchains instead of the permissioned one to issue that. And the reason I think is more to do with, the distribution effect of a public blockchain. So I do think like whether or not the t- the the primary issuance of tokenized deposits will be unpermissioned or permissionless is one one factor for the world to decide on. But the next is, what do you want to use that for? And I do think that as we're talking about the use cases, one of the reasons why having tokenized deposits, again, it could be majority in dollar form, in euro form, these are the major currencies in which you can trade these emergence of real world assets on chain, you can trade the tokenized money market funds, say by Brazilian a citizen who don't have like otherwise the the direct access to a U.S. Treasury, but instead using a form of dollar on chain to trade that, that is appealing. And I think this is in which the the main question is: Do you think whether stablecoin and tokenized deposits can coexist almost in a harmony sense, right? And people have a choice to choose between whether it's stablecoin or tokenized deposits or even retail CBDC to be used for these type of use cases uh, down the road.
2: Uh, maybe, maybe one more thing that's um, perhaps worth underscoring. I mean, for, for my purposes, so, you know, I'm a venture capitalist, right? We're in the business of investing in startups and, and trying to find ways that startups can, can build interesting businesses within the space of, of blockchain and cryptocurrencies. If you look historically, almost everything that's been built that's been successful in crypto has basically been built by startups. If you look at Coinbase, if you look at Circle, if you look at even Tether, all these things, Ethereum, Compound, every single thing that one can think of as a real big success in the crypto space has been a startup. And almost all of the big companies that have tried to get into the space and build really valuable things have basically not captured very much of the market. So you know Facebook tried to build the cryptocurrency obviously didn't go anywhere you had you know JP Morgan launching uh, quorum you had um, you know many many large organizations have tried to kind of stake their claim in this space and they've and they've done work they've done important work um, but they've captured very little of the overall gains that have been made in this market now when you talk about tokenized deposits, what you're talking about is literally how can commercial banks find their way to take a cut of this industry in a way that, kind of fits the industry nicely into the box into which commercial banks already fit. And th- almost the framing of that question, I think, in, in a way curtails your ability to see and to really think deeply about what is so disruptive about crypto. Why is it that there are so many people who are using stable coins, even though stable coins are not you know, backed by the FDIC, there is no uh, guarantee from the federal government that these things are going to be worth dollars at the end of the day if something goes wrong. Like, why would people f- be foregoing all the guarantees and all of the the advantages that the government confers onto commercial banks and, and be eschewing commercial bank deposits in favor of these crazy wild west currencies. If you don't stop to really deeply ask that question and get a convincing answer to it, I think you're condemned to be in the cycle of doing what all the large companies have done in trying to engage with crypto is say, okay, well, this, you know, this seems to be really cool. We're going to grab some of these buzzwords and we're going to find a way to capture some of this market. Um, I don't think that's a, you kind of have to start from first principles to really understand what is the role for commercial banks and for central banks to play in this industry. And, and, you know, to the point I was making earlier about the three different categories of programmability, um, uh, 24, seven clearing and, uh, open access. Almost every single CBDC that I have ever seen does not offer Programmability or open access. The only thing that they offer is twenty-four-seven clearing, which again is is accessible through means other than CBDCs. So uh, that that's why I find myself continually frustrated at seeing how um, you know you start with this big vision of like, oh, what 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 would it be like if there were you know let's let's let our minds roam free for a second and imagine that. The CBDCs allowed total programmability and that they allowed anybody to hold any central bank currency. Um, but then by the time these things actually get to white paper, and then by the time the white papers go to production, all of those things fall away one by one until eventually all you have is a, oh, it's a, it's a real-time gross settlement system. That's this, this big thing that we talked about as a magical disruptive blockchain has just become a, a real-time gross settlement system.
1: Do you think in your ideal eventuality, what would that look like? In a sense, if if, in your opinion, that it's not advisable, let's say, for central bank to play this active role, what role should the central bank and commercial banks play in that future-future? And do you think that stablecoin is the answer to the future of money?
2: So, look, I, I, I'm I woefully underqualified to give advice to, you know, <laughs> banking regulators. Um, it's not my area of expertise. That being said... um. There, there's a there's a famous uh, paper by Hayek, where uh, the, the famous uh, Austrian economist, where he describes a world in which money is given free reign of competition, right? And this idea that uh, states having a monopoly over money is unwise, I mean, this obviously used to not be the case, and that there should be free competition over money. And that in fact, if there were free competition over money, that some monies might win out over others, even if they are not issued by uh, central banks. Now... It's, it's easy to look back on that. This was written in like the sixties or seventies. I think it's easy to look back on that and say, well, you know, I don't know. It seems a bit Pollyanna-ish to imagine that there are just going to be randos or, or companies that are going to issue their own currencies and that this is going to be not backed by central bank money and that uh, people are going to want this, uh, and that it's going to win in competition with currencies. Clearly that's not the case, right? In, in, in a very narrow sense, things that are issued by non-state actors acting as the basis of currency has not worked. Nobody wants that kind of money. Um, that being said, there's, I think a weaker form of the argument that Hayek made in that, in that paper, which is that in a sense, central banks are issuers of base money, right? But there are also issuers of other forms of money lower down in the hierarchy that are, that are built on top of that, uh, basis of, of central bank money, right? Commercial bank deposits are a form of money that is transmuted from central bank money. And it has certain guarantees and certain restraints, certain restrictions. And I think allowing free competition, over the kinds of money that are that are derived from central bank money i think is ultimately good now there's always going to be some moral hazard that plays into that right which is if, if and when you get a really big stablecoin and that stablecoin fails as eventually some stablecoin will and, and undoubtedly when you have a stablecoin issue that fails there's going to be calls for bailouts right now the advantage the political economy of it that the advantage of having a stablecoin where most of the holders of the stablecoin are foreigners demanding bailouts is that it's going to have very little political capital in the US, right? If all the, if all the people who lose their money are, you know, farmers in Nebraska, then there is going to be just, it's going to be mayhem for this thing, for it to fight against a bailout. You, you will have to bail this thing out because of just the, the political reality, that okay it's it's poor people these people lost their livelihood they didn't take you know they 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 didn't know the risk they were taking there's no way for them to know them better they were not sophisticated enough right or there's just a disruption to the US economy it would be too severe to stop that but if the holders of a stablecoin are just a bunch of you know uh, crazy people around the world who are trying to get out of their own currencies well if if that stablecoin goes under well you, you caveat emptor we told you it wasn't central bank money we told you that it wasn't commercial bank money we told you there was no FDIC guarantee so buzz off so I think for that reason, the, the the number one advice that I would give in these things is that, look, if you try to hold on too tightly to a vice grip onto all forms of money and say that forms of money that we do not approve of are not allowed to circulate, then you're going to do to yourself exactly what uh, the U.S. did with respect to Eurodollar deposits, which is that they're just going to go overseas and they become even more unregulated than they were under your proposed regime, right? At the end of the day, money wants to be free. Markets want to be free. And if 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 you if you are issuing something as big and as important as central bank money and you labor under the delusion that we are going to be able to control 100% of it but also internationalize it
0: i think you are you're fooling yourself you just are it's it's interesting that the way the way you put it in this perspective and that's why i i feel that this is sort of we're going to find a lot of audience for a variety of these forms of money is that if you are a foreigner to the us you live in a underworld economy and your inflation is punitive and you have and you, you might want to have access to a different form of money that you can transact locally, but it's backed globally, then that is probably your first protocol. It'll be stable coins issued by a very private entrepreneur. If you are not, if you're the farmer in Nebraska, maybe that form of money is not cut for you because you don't want to have, you'll need to have that exposure and you don't want to have that exposure. Then maybe tokenized deposits for some of your automated receivables for your farm equipment might be the best way for you to go about that and have, you know, capture all those efficiencies and your bank's going to be happy to offer you that. Now, if you're a central bank and you want to have full control of your state concession, obviously CBDCs are going to be the form of money that you can impose to your regulated entities and they have to accept because that's just now how we do it, baby. So I think there will be layers to that. And I like the the whole uh, ladder of priorities that you laid out early on in the conversation because I think it's not going to be one size fits all and, 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 and variety is the spice of life. So I, I, I'm pretty sure that we'll see a lot of uh, activity in different sectors of the economy across a variety of different forms of money and as with maybe even blockchains, we're not gonna see a like winner take all kind of scenario because the realities globally are so different that yeah, that's why people in you know Africa are using Tether on Tron because that's cheap, that's a form of a dollar and they can do a bunch of stuff with that. And people in Argentina are you know, buying USDC, USDT on other chains because maybe they can afford the cost, but still have access to the dollar. So I think there will be that variety that will be probably the long tail, you know, blue ocean type of thing, even for some forms of money. Central banks will centralize. That's in their very nature. That's on their name, by the way. <laughs> so absolutely, I think there will be a lot of spaces that we're going to see evolving and I can't wait to see how these things get there. So
1: I just want to add because I, I think from all of the discussion, we do agree, right? For whoever, whether it's a business or an individual citizen, it is important to have that choice because I still fundamentally believe whatever regulation you have hopefully you would have the choice to choose, even if it's a limited amount of choice, to choose what you ultimately want to use. And I think that's really important. And I would say that what I'm bullish is in what the the innovation, the power of innovation could really bring. In the sense like, you know, I think about if... If when at the time people were designing iPhone can think about all the potential use cases that we do on an iPhone today, the answer is probably not. But they do enable a platform in which you can then enable so many other applications to then be in the future develop as the consumers evolve. The same thing I'm seeing right now. And that's why, you know, the future of money, what does that look like? We don't know. It could be stable. It could be tokenized out deposit. It could be CBDC. But the important is how do you design that platform, right? And this is where we are touching on the programmability real time might be a low bar, but that programmability is so powerful and it doesn't matter if you don't know all the use cases as long as you ensure that there is an environment for people to be able to build these future applications and i think that's really key and so if we can really allow that to happen and this is your typical like public private partnership i think that's a really important thing to drill on that you don't want to map out all the future but you want to enable that growth to be possible in the future which is really important so yeah
0: awesome wow we're out of time That wraps up today's discussion. Thank you all so much for joining us. Uh, Where can people find more about you and your companies? Uh, Hasib?
2: Yeah, uh, just Google me. Uh, Just look up my name, H-A-S-E-E-B. You can find my
0: Twitter. You can find uh, Dragonfly. Um, So yeah, just look me up. Awesome. Catherine?
1: Visa.com, LinkedIn, and Twitter.
0: I'm 0xMauricio on X, Mauricio Magaldi on LinkedIn. And obviously you can find us at 11fs.com. Thank you all for listening. If you like what you heard, subscribe to our podcast so you never miss an episode. And if you can't wait until the next episode, take a look at the many previous episodes on our back catalog and get yourself properly immersed in the world of crypto. And if you really love it, please leave us a review. It helps us to make it better and helps other people find the show. As always, if you want to join the conversation, find us on social media. Just search for 11FS or Blockchain Insider or email us at podcasts at 11FS.com. This is all for today. Stay rare, stay weird, LFG.